Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A video of a sheriff's deputy tasing a man in a violent incident is released after a legal battle. I'm Claire Tregesser, in for Jade Heineman. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. A few lucky people who get deported from the U.S. are eventually allowed to come back. But that doesn't erase the trauma. It's like pulling you away from your where you grew up, your, your home, your surroundings, your, your habitat. A couple from Benita turned their pandemic wedding woes into a feature film. And a Del Mar man's rare collection of vinyl records is heading to Stanford. That's ahead on Midday Edition... Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department last week released body camera footage from an incident that took place in 2019 in Imperial Beach. The video shows a deputy tasing a black father who had come to a sheriff's DUI checkpoint to pick up his son who'd been detained for being an unlicensed driver. The taser hit a lighter in his pocket, which started a fire. Deputies then stomped on the man to put the fire out while restraining him. I'm going to share a clip from the video. Y'all know damn well y'all wrong. All right, just going to put this Uh-huh. You can search Oh, yeah. I believe that, Sergeant. Oh, y'all, man. Hang on. Let's get on. Let's get my face again. Let's get me on fire. Okay. Man, come over here. Do it over here, come, man. I can't breathe. Stop. 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 I can't breathe. Relax. Relax. Damn. Y'all got the handcuffs on me. What the fuck can I do? And you can hear him say there, I can't breathe, which we've heard in many other videos of police violence. Uh, The man in this video, whose name is Joe Young, was taken to the hospital for treatment. The charges against him were later dropped 
And the reason that we know about this incident and now are able to see this video is because of the work of the First Amendment Coalition to bring it to light. So joining me to talk about this is Monica Price, a legal fellow for the First Amendment Coalition. And Monica, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us what led up to when Joe Young was arrested? Yes. So the incident, as I understand it, there was a DUI checkpoint and his son was in the car with some friends. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if he was the driver or not, but they were found to be um, out past curfew. Um, it was about two o'clock in the morning, I think. And so they were um, detained by the police until an adult or parent could come pick them up. Mr. Young, one of the minors, was his son. He goes to pick him up, and um, the officers would not release his son to him because he didn't have identification. And so, you know, there was kind of some pushback. Um, Can I just take my kid home? It's two in the morning. Things continued to escalate. They told Mr. Young that he had to leave, which I think was kind of counterintuitive to leave without his son. He said, you know, I don't want to leave. What's going on? And eventually he is placed under arrest. He is tased. He is tackled to the ground. In the process of him being tased, um, the taser hit a lighter in his pocket. The lighter ignited. Um, There's fire you can see in the video. There's fire coming out of his pocket area. He ends up with, you know, kind of a burn on his thigh. The officers kind of kicked him um, in an att- while he was on the ground in an attempt to get the fire out. It does go out. But, yeah, he ends up with some injuries. You know, he's, he's got some pain in his nose, bruises, abrasions, um, this burn mark on his thigh. And he was tased three times in what's called dry stun mode, at least one of them, which is when the taser makes direct physical contact with the person's body instead of the probes flying out and hitting the person, um, which I, can be more painful. So he had some marks from that dry stun, and there were you know, knee strikes, body weight was used on him. Um, it was quite a few officers that were taking him down. So um, yes, and as you said, he went to the hospital for treatment after, and um, he did take photographs of his injury that were later used in a civil lawsuit against San Diego County. And I mean, as you described, this this incident was violent and had several issues. How did the First Amendment Coalition learn about it in the first place? Yeah, so we we learned about um, this incident from uh, Tasha Williamson. She is an activist in San Diego, and she's the founder of an organization called Exhaling Injustice, which we've collaborated with her before on trainings and things like that. So um, Tasha told us about the incident. She told us that she'd requested the body camera footage and um, the you know physical paper records and got a denial letter saying this wasn't a great bodily injury, which um, I think, as you know, is one of the categories of law enforcement records that the public should be able to get access to after Senate Bill 1421 passed in 2018. Um, so they're saying this doesn't qualify for the law and we're not going to release these records to you. So Tasha let us know. We decided this doesn't this doesn't sound right. We decided to write a letter pointing out just the facts of what happened, and eventually, after you know some back and forth, um, the county told us. You know, at first they still denied, saying this you know this didn't result in great bodily injury. Our other legal fellow, Kristen Policarpio, 
had the idea to, okay, well, let's get, you know, let's get all the papers from the civil lawsuit that was filed. There are complaints, deposition transcripts, all sorts of information that we can show, you know, bring back and show the county, hey, this is, you know, what both Mr. Young and your own deputies are saying happened. And so it took legal action to get the sheriff's department to to release these records in this video. Why is it so difficult to get them to release videos like this one? You know, I think it's kind of a a, a deliberate. I, I feel like it's a little deliberate on their part. I mean, they had this information. You know, we we got this information from from them. They had this deposition transcripts. They know what happened with the lawsuit. They could have, you know, flipped through these deposition transcripts, seen that their own officers are saying that this man was kicked, he was on fire. You know, I think there's there's resistance amongst cities, counties, the law enforcement community towards releasing these videos. I think they kind of just throw, you know, throw a denial out there and they hope it goes away. But it was pretty sloppy in our opinion. You know, they they had this information, the case settled, and they're still pushing back. It really shouldn't take a lawyer to point out the law and go through these depositions. Um, they, they have their own lawyers. You know, it, it really, it shouldn't take all of this effort. So, you know, that would be kind of my message for the public or the media, anyone who hears about an incident, um, you know, point out the injuries, point out what happened, because this great bodily injury standard should be pretty comprehensive. And the way that law enforcement agencies are trying to argue it should be interpreted is very narrow and I think incorrect. It doesn't go with when this law was passed, the intent, you know, that the legislators were trying to put into the law and it just doesn't fit with what many, many courts have said um, great bodily injury means, which is, you know, bruises, lacerations, anything lasting really seems to be what the definition is. Um, They're trying to say that it's you know, someone needs to be unconscious, broken bones, um, in danger of death. Those are some of the the, the standard that, that a lot of law enforcement agencies are trying to introduce. And we're just arguing for the definition that's in the law. And I should let our listeners know that we reached out to the Sheriff's Department for comment on this incident and the arrest, and uh, they have not yet responded. I'm wondering... In your opinion, does does what happened here demonstrate a flaw in that state law, SB 1421, or is it a loophole that law enforcement agencies are exploiting? The law is pretty clear. Um, the law, you know, deliberately says we want this transparency so that the public can see what's happened. And um, I'm not sure where, you know, where the ideas come from. It seems like maybe the police agencies talk to each other because we keep seeing this argument where the law says great bodily injury, if it's a result of the incident, it doesn't matter if it's an accident. It doesn't matter, you know, if it was deliberate or not. If the incident resulted in a great bodily injury, those records should be released so the public can see them, dissect them, decide for themselves, um, you know, fight for new policies if they want to and that sort of thing. So for me, it's kind of a disingenuous interpretation of the law to say that this needs to be a serious bodily injury, which has a different definition. And that definition is much more restrictive. Um, But, you know, even in the California Constitution, it says that these transparency laws go in the public's favor if there's any ambiguity. 
Um, so that's something that we've been putting in our letters and arguing as well. Um, we did get the records released in this case, but um, it's an issue that we're very interested in and it may have to you know, go, go to court one day in order to get these records, but we're prepared to do so. And so why was it important to the First Amendment Coalition to, to get this video to be released? Yes, the, the purpose for us is really um, in, the, in the transparency. We wanted these records to come out so that the public can see them, decide for themselves if what they think, you know, what they think uh, happened was in line with department policy, if this was how department policy should be, if it was, um, and that sort of thing. So when, when this law was passed, again, it was really about, you know, keeping the public and law enforcement safe by having this transparency. Um, the law specifically said, you know, the focus is letting these um, records come out so that the community can be informed about how its deputies are interacting with members of the public and how also how our institutions are responding when there are allegations of excessive force. So is there an investigate, you know, is the investigation proper? Has the district attorney really looked at all of the evidence and come to a fair conclusion? So yeah, we, we really wanted these records to be available for the public to make make their own decisions on what they what they see and what should be changed. All right. Well, Monica Price, thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Nice talking to you. Most people never get a chance to legally re-enter the United States after being deported. Those who do often find themselves stuck in a precarious limbo. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis spoke with several former deportees about their transition back to life in the U.S. Yolanda Barona was detained and deported in 2010 for working without legal authorization. In an instant, she was forced to leave behind her two young children in San Diego. Barona was finally allowed to return in June 2022. We met her in San Isidro just as she crossed the border for the first time. Our interview was cut short when she saw her daughter and hugged her for the first time in nearly 12 years. A few months later, we caught up with Barona in her home in San Diego. She was still incredibly happy about being reunited with her children again. For me, the most marvelous thing is to be able to kiss my children, to hug them, things that were denied to me for 11 and a half years. Barona is grateful to be back. She lives with her husband, Hector Barajas, also a former deportee, but their return... It just hasn't been what they expected. We were homeless, like people who don't have a place to live. That was our reality. And now we are grateful for this little patio and casita. She says landlords refused to rent to them because they had no credit history. They eventually got housing through Barajas' military benefits. It's unclear exactly how many formerly deported people are allowed to return to the U.S., KPBS asked multiple federal agencies, but none of them said they tracked this data. Robert Irwin is a professor at UC Davis. In 2017, he helped start the Humanizing Deportation Project. It was just after the record number of deportations during the Obama administration, and just as former President Donald Trump was regularly demonizing immigrants. And so some people imagined that they were just kind of criminals, 
uh, or they were people who could easily readjust to life in in Mexico or wherever they were going because uh, that's where they were from. In reality, many consider the U.S. their home. Jack Aviles was brought here when he was six months old. He grew up in San Diego and joined the Marines. Then, in 2001, he was deported after being charged with possession of two unregistered firearms. He was allowed to return in 2019, but the shadow of deportation has stayed with him. I had to work, I had to work my social, I had to establish credit, I had to rent, I had to pay bills. So, so all that is like, yeah, we got our, our to return home, but we didn't have like opportunities like that, like we had to find our own jobs, so we had to find our own struggle. So that Aviles lives in constant fear of being deported again. He says he mostly keeps to himself, avoids big crowds, and does everything he can to stay out of trouble. Even when he's just walking across the street. I don't I think about crossing the street and my jaywalking and my not. I mean literally that's how I'm very, very paranoid because I don't want to ruin it. Family members, including American citizens, aren't spared from the trauma of deportation. Michael Paulson became a single father of three young boys when his wife, Emma Sanchez, was deported in 2006. I held a full-time job, a part-time job, and I used to take the kids to Mexico on the weekend. Uh, it's very hard, you know, a lot of stress, a lot of financial burdens. You got two rents, two households to stock for food, and uh, yeah, a lot of time, a lot of stress. During the long separation, Sanchez dreamed of the day when her family would finally be reunited again. It feels like we are destined to continue to suffer because you have this hope and optimism of coming back. But you get here and it isn't what you expected. In my case, my children grew up. To ease her pain, Sanchez goes through hundreds of old family photos she keeps in boxes. They remind her of happy times, <laughs> but also of what could have been. That was KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis with part one of a two-part series on the experiences of people who have been deported. And Gustavo joins us now and opens his reporter's notebook. Hi, Gustavo. Hello, Claire. So this piece starts off by highlighting the case of one deportee, Yolanda Verona. What can you tell us about what her experiences tell us about the challenges people in her situation face? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people can relate to Yolanda's story, right? She was she was in the US on a tourist visa and was deported after border officials found out that she was working, which which is a violation of that visa. And that's I mean, pretty common in San Diego. If you've ever worked in the restaurant industry, construction, landscaping, hospitality, chances are you know somebody in her situation. She's not someone who comes to mind when you think of dangerous criminal that needs to be de- deported. And I think her story resonates because, I mean, she lost everything overnight, uh, her job, her home, her children. She was engaged at the time, and that marriage never happened. Uh, but she's also pretty inspiring because she managed to reinvent herself in, in TJ. She founded a nonprofit to help other uh, deported mothers land on their feet. You mentioned this in the piece, but can you talk a little more about the difficulties that formerly deported people can face? Yeah, I think, I mean, the financial ones are, are, there's just a whole list of financial uh, challenges. 
Um, they kind of start with the fact that after spending, you know, 10, 12, 15 years in Mexico, you come back all of a sudden and you don't have a credit history. I mean, we all know how difficult life can be if you have no credit or bad credit. Uh, when Yolanda and her husband first came back, they really struggled to find housing. Landlords wouldn't rent to them because they had no credit history. Uh, but outside of that, there's also just the sticker shock that comes with pretty much every purchase you're going to make. If you're buying, uh, like you're going from spending pesos to spending dollars, I mean, groceries, gas, bills, that's essentially doubled overnight. And it kind of jumps a little bit to the, the difficulties with employment status, right? I mean, think about how hard it is for people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s to start new careers. That's kind of what uh, return deportees are, are coming up against right now. And all these little things just, just kind of add up. There are a lot of misconceptions in the general public surrounding formerly deported people, aren't there, don't you think? Oh, I think so. Not just formerly, but actual like de deportees and formerly deported people. And, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with, with, deport, with, uh, with the rhetoric in the U.S., especially around deportations. I've kind of alluded to it, but there's this idea that deportations are something that happens to criminals. Uh, that we need to deport people to keep communities safe. But when you look at the data, I mean, most people who are deported don't have violent criminal convictions. Um, most of them actually don't have convictions at all. They're, they're kind of guilty of uh, civil infractions, which would be uh, like immigration-type violations. And this isn't limited, this kind of misconception isn't limited to deportations. I mean, when we use words like invasion, open borders, it pushes this narrative that there's something uh, sketchy and, and inherently dangerous about a certain group of people, when the reality is that multiple studies show that native-born U.S. citizens are actually more likely to break the law than, than immigrants are. Just another misconception that I think this story really touched on, and I'm glad it did, is that we tend to think that deportations only impact immigrants. But every person featured in the story has direct relatives who are American citizens, and their deportations impacted the entire family, right? In some cases, children separated from their parents, um, a spouse loses a partner, an entire family loses a primary earner. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of trauma that a deportation can inflict on a family? Yeah, I think that that was the hardest part for me to, to listen to, right? There's obviously the financial difficulties, but the psychological trauma is, is another level. I mean, initially, you'd think this is a happy story of deported people finally being allowed to come back legally to the U.S. And in a lot of ways, it is, right? Everyone I talk to is happy to be back. They're grateful for this new opportunity. But when they get here, especially mothers, they really struggle to reconnect with their children. Uh, their children, in most cases, were too young to really know and understand that their mothers were forced to leave, uh, from their perspective, their moms abandoned them. They grew up without a mother. So when they come back, you have years of unresolved issues that won't go away overnight. Emma Sanchez is one person who was featured in the story. She spent years uh, trying to rebuild those relationships with her children. And at one point when she first came back, one of her uh, boys told her, like, look, I, I, I love you. I, I know who you are, but I don't really view you as my mother. As we said, this is the first in a two-part series. Can you give us a preview of what else we can expect from part two in this series? Yeah, yeah. So, so part one focused on deportees who were allowed to return. Uh, the, the second part is going to be more about deportees who are still in Mexico and, and following those struggles. And it 
look specifically at Tijuana call centers and how they've become uh, a support system for for an entire subculture of, of deportees. All right. Well, I've been speaking with KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. And Gustavo, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Claire. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Claire Tregesser, in for Jade Heidman. You've probably heard at least one horror story from a couple whose wedding was disrupted by the COVID pandemic. Venues canceled, money lost, and lots of tears shed. Well, the pandemic did impact Chris and Hillary Soriano's wedding, but their story is not a tragedy. It's one of perseverance and a little mischief. And now the couple's story is being told in a feature film that's streaming beginning February 7th on Amazon Prime. Chris Soriano, who lives with his wife in Bonita and stars in The Wedding Hustler, spoke with KPBS's Andrew Bowen. So take us back to the before times. You were planning a wedding and the pandemic hit. What happened next? How did that impact your plans? Oh, it impacted it so much that uh, there was even some drama in the family because people were wondering, hey, is he really serious about getting married? What's going on? And so uh, I was like, no, I'm very serious. I'm going to figure out a way to do this. And um, with every venue being booked and like things being rescheduled, it was just really hard to put this wedding together. How did it feel knowing that your wedding plans were really out of your control? Oh, at first it just felt surreal because it was like, you know, that this can't happen. You know, usually when you plan a wedding, you plan it in advance so that you can make it happen. And when things are so backlogged uh, because of the pandemic and availability, it's almost like there was a a thought in my mind where it's like, all right, let's just run away and get married and, and, you know, (laughs) not invite anybody. But, you know, uh, that was something I couldn't do, especially since it's such a, you know, memorable day in our lives. We needed our family there. So I just had to get creative with a way to do this. You know, I imagine the, there were issues with the venue, with your vendors, catering, uh, photography, uh, DJs, you know, all that stuff must have been disrupted. Where did all of that leave you with actually trying to make this wedding happen? <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I reached out to so many like videographers and caterers, and it was really hard to get them on the date that we wanted. And so my, our, our wedding was rescheduled like twice. And so through this frustration as a filmmaker, I said, what if I can showcase this experience in a movie to help others so that they could figure out how to plan this on their own? 
And so I kind of journaled and documented this process, how to negotiate things cheaper, how to figure out how to get something at a good deal. And so I was able to lock in everything and put it in a, a movie called The Wedding Hustler. And hence that title, Hustling to Get a Wedding Done. <laughs> and uh, so you had this idea to actually make your real life experience a movie. How did you actually get the movie made? <laughs> it, it took a lot of that, you know, tenacity and negotiation to get it made but but more so uh, by me being naive and not knowing how to do this it was like you know what i got nothing to lose you know i've never uh, done a wedding so let's let's give it a shot and the more crazy the challenge was i think the funnier it was to add uh, into the screenplay one of those examples being getting a wedding cake on a budget how do you do that and in in the screenplay and in real life i went to costco and got normal sheet cake and you know cut that up and served it to guests while i had a small affordable miniature cake to show as our model cake you know stuff like that or even using you know fake flowers instead of real flowers you know every experience i went through i just wrote and i i made it into that screenplay and on the first day of production it was our actual wedding. So we put our actual wedding in the movie. Yeah, that's fascinating. So the, the real life wedding that you, when you were legally getting married is what people are seeing on screen. Where does the movie end and the real wedding begin? Where's that line? Oh, <laughs> the, the beginning of the movie is actually me figuring out how to put on this wedding in this pandemic with all these challenges, how to adapt to a budget, where to get, you know, drama in the family. And so it starts off right at the beginning of planning in the movie and it ends uh, right when the groom is able to pull it off. So we use our actual names. We use real wedding planners. We use real, you know, places we got married at. So everything was very, I guess it's a, a, a realistic way of filmmaking, I guess, making it really real. You had some help from a few of the stars of the Netflix series Bling Empire, uh, namely Kane Lim and Christine Chang. Tell us how those relationships came to be. Oh, so great to, to work with them. But those relationships came to be with me just reaching out on um, on Instagram via DM to, to Kane and telling him, you know, I appreciate what he did and uh, all his personality in Bling Empire was what I was looking for in this movie because our wedding planner, Christine Chang, has an assistant. And I thought that, you know, that would be Kane. That would be the perfect. I mean, I was watching Bling Empire and, you know, I thought it would just be a random cool thought. And uh, sure enough, he responded and he really liked the concept. And he just, you know, joined as an executive producer and, and acted in the movie and, and it all flowed. You and your wife star in this movie, as I've mentioned. You also cast some of your friends and family in this film. What was that like for everybody? Oh, it was a great experience because it was like working with uh, your, your cousins and your aunties and uncles. And it was like, are we really working right now? You know, <laughs> to get on set and see your family there and uh, have that energy and to actually capture this this moment you know, I filmed at my, my cousin's house to, you know, restaurants that we went to. It was like working with family every day. Chris, you're just a regular guy. Uh, I understand your day job is in healthcare. You're not an ex super experienced filmmaker. Making this happen is pretty remarkable. What do you tell people when they ask how you pulled this off? Oh, I tell them that in order to pull off a movie, you just have to really believe and want to do it. And at 18, when I graduated high school, I've always wanted to be in the films and always make a movie. And I never did. 
And now at 33, I finally had this opportunity and, you know, look at all that time that could have been invested in making a movie that I never did. So when that time came during the pandemic, I said, let me do this. And so I would advise anyone that if you're going to do something, just do it and be resourceful. And that's what I did to put on this wedding and this movie. So, Chris, your wife must be really proud of you for all this. Um, You mentioned you had another film. Tell us about that. Yes, the film that I made at the beginning of the pandemic or right, you know, in that first year was called uh, Almighty Zeus. And it was about a boxer who uh, sees a hate crime and he pretty much defends uh, this Asian man that's being sprayed with hand sanitizer. And so, you know, that was the plot that I created because I saw these hate crimes happening to the elder Asian community. And so I made that movie and I was able to get in theaters and distributed. And that's kind of like what started my filmmaking journey. I had no experience before. That was my first film and it was picked up. And uh, I even had a boxing champion named Manny Pacquiao that uh, executive produced it. So the pandemic was a moment in time that was a very creative space for me to work in. Chris, any plans to move up to Hollywood and make a real career out of filmmaking? Oh, I love it out here in San Diego. I, you know, everyone here is just so friendly and they want to make movies and out in LA, they'll charge you for everything. And they're used to seeing that camera, but out here, everybody just wants to help you. So I plan to be here for the rest of my life and make movies here in San Diego. The couple's story is being told in a feature film that's streaming beginning February 7th on Amazon Prime. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Claire Tregesser in for Jade Heidman. Last week, we learned that a rare collection of vinyl records amassed by a Del Mar couple has been acquired by Stanford University. We first heard about the collection last year when a deal to donate them to San Diego State University fell apart. The collection itself belonged to Del Mar philanthropists Brahm and Sandra Dijkstra. It contains nearly 50,000 rare jazz, blues, gospel, reggae, and soul records. Midday Edition host Jade Heidman spoke with Brahm Dijkstra last year about the scope of music housed in the collection. Well, it's called the John Coltrane Memorial collection because essentially as a Dutch boy, I became absolutely fascinated with the sound of John Coltrane, which I first heard with Miles Davis. ¶¶ 
I began to study his music and essentially he became the reason why I came to the United States some uh, 60 years ago. Talk to me a bit more about what you feel when you listen to John Coltrane. What I feel is absolute creativity, a kind of a sense of wanting to find out more about everything, about life, about creativity, about the world in general, a pushing style of creativity that might push the world into a different direction. Coltrane was one of the most creative people in not just jazz, but in the entire world of music and culture. And I have always seen him as one of my greatest inspirations. There isn't just jazz in this archive. This is an extensive collection of gospel, blues, R&B, Caribbean, African, cumbia. I mean, how interconnected are these different forms of music, in your opinion? Well, the interconnection is through rhythm, through the various polyrhythms which come out of Africa and then spread through a diaspora of various forms of rhythm. Uh, different cultures pick up certain kinds of rhythm, emphasize certain kinds of rhythm, but they all weave back into a sound that is a really a form of communication that is extremely important. The interesting thing is that in uh, the music of the Dogon from Mali, there's a, a myth that the drum taught humanity how to speak. That notion that the drum taught us how to speak is, is really something that weaves through all the forms of music that are connected with the drum because the drum is essentially the articulation of what we really feel, our emotions, and it drives our emotions. And it is just fascinating to me to see how different cultures bring out these elements. And we also know that Africa's music also heavily influences other genres of music. Can you talk about that? Well, for example, the whole focus of reggae music, especially that in the 70s and 80s, was the focus on Ethiopia and on the influence of Ethiopia, the idea of returning to Africa. So a lot of uh, reggae uses African rhythms to indicate that. same time, for example, there is so much influence of African music on Latin American music in general. Cuba, mi patria querida, para ti. 
ti es mi inspiración Boba, mi patria querida Para ti es mi inspiración You can hear it in barcata, you can hear it in the various forms of cumbia, and all of these are also part of the collection, of course. Well, we've been talking about this music in your collection, so we might as well hear some specific selections from it. The first song that we're going to hear is a track by jazz great Art Blakey and his band, The Jazz Messengers. What can you tell us about the song Avila and Tequila? Well, Avila and Tequila is essentially Blakey's attempt at blending New World jazz and rhythms with African rhythms as well. What he would do some point during his concerts is put together a drum track. His musicians, people like a wonderful tenor saxophone player, Hank Mobley, the great pianist, Horace Silver, and Kenny Dorham, a wonderful trumpeter, and they would all take rhythm instruments and start playing them. And Blakey, who was probably the most aggressive drummer you could possibly imagine would play over all of that. That was Avila and Tequila by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Our next track takes us to West Africa. Brom, tell us about this next song, Bansu, by singer and musician Joe Mensa. Joe Mensah was a Nigerian and was creating music around the same time that Anikolapa Kuti started to play his music, and they were both heavily influenced by American jazz. The interesting thing is that where Kelakuti played tenor sax mostly. Joe Menza actually played an instrument that has disappeared into history, and that is the Moog synthesizer. Bonsu by Joe Mensa. Moving right along, we have a track from noted Cuban percussionist and band leader Mongo Santa Maria. Brom, what can you tell us about this recording of El Toro? Well, El Toro is absolutely one of the most magnificent pieces of music that I know of. It has great solos by Mongo Santa Maria, but also by all his musicians. And what is fascinating here is that some of his musicians were U.S. American and some of his musicians were South American or Cuban. And they all blended together in the most amazing fashion. And I'm afraid that you're not going to hear much of it, but this is absolutely one of the most fabulous pieces of music you could imagine. (laughs) 
and you're listening to El Toro by Mongo Santa Maria. Next, we have a song by Haitian composer and saxophonist Raul Guillaume. Uh, what can listeners expect from the track Balance Yaya? It's actually an early Haitian piece of music that precedes what became later compa music. It is a form that is called the Congo. I don't know why they called it the Congo, but it includes clearly a lot of elements that come from Africa. And so the link between Africa and Haiti, which is quite obvious, of course, is very striking in that piece. And the song you're hearing is Balance Yaya by Haitian musician Raul Guillaume. Next is a politically charged track by the noted Nigerian activist and band leader we mentioned earlier, Fela Kuti. Brahm, what's the story behind this track, Zombie? Essentially, it's one of Fela's many attacks on the political situation in Nigeria. way in which the Nigerian government was trying to force people into doing the political will of the government. And zombie is an indication of what he, he thought the Nigerian government wanted to make the people of Nigeria into. The song is called Zombie by legendary Afrobeat musician Fela Kuti. Finally, in our exploration of the John Coltrane Black Music Archive, we have a track featuring the collection's namesake. Brom, tell us about this track, Just Friends, by the Cecil Taylor Quintet. What is fascinating is that Cecil Taylor was, when this album was recorded in 1958, he was on his way up as a real experimental musician. At the time, his music hadn't yet evolved the way it would later on. And at the same time, John Coltrane's music was on the way to an evolution to something entirely different from his hard bop environments. So Cecil Taylor and Coltrane came together. And I think what is most fascinating about hard driving jazz, which is this album, is that they inspired each other. And that was Just Friends by the Cecil Taylor Quintet featuring John Coltrane. 
a longer playlist of the tracks and more selections from the John Coltrane Memorial Black Music Archive can be found online at kpbs.org. I've been speaking with the collection's curator, Brom Dykstra. And Brom, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.